So there's been a couple of birthdays in my world these past couple of days, and I've got my oldest niece's birthday coming up in a couple of weeks. And I have to admit to you, my friends, I am not great at giving gifts. And I know that can change, and people might be thinking, well, if you know that, Trent, do something about it. But I think about a gift, or I think about giving a gift, and then I get distracted, and I get on with my life, and then all of a sudden, it's like a day before the celebration or the birthday, and I think to myself, oh boy, I've got to get a gift, and I, I rush off, and I do my best, and oftentimes, I'm like, man, I could have done a little bit better. I could have put a little bit more time, a little bit more thought into the gift that I was going to give. Um, it's so beautiful, those moments when you buy a gift for someone, and it's exactly right. It just fits, and the delight in their eyes and like the thanks that just comes out of them is just so encouraging. It's fun to see that with a little kid, right? Where they open it up and they are just blown away and they love it. Have you ever given a gift where they open it up and they look at you like, what were you thinking? I, I've done that. That's happened to me. Um, it's kind of one of those rough moments. Um, it's also happened to me, and I was one of those kids that had a really hard time faking it. So if I didn't like a gift, I, it, it leaked out, and the disappointment was on my face. And I was always like, oh man, Trent, you should have covered that up a little bit better. Um, there's been those moments, probably in your life too, where you've had a friend, and you get this gift, and you open it up, and you think to yourself, they clearly like this gift for themselves way more than for me. There's actually that sense or there's that hint of like, I'm giving you this gift so that I can use it, so that I can enjoy it, so that I can be a part of it. You know, there's moments like that. And I think we've all found ourselves in that situation too. Or you're on the other end, you give a gift, and this is a bit more honest, right? You give a gift and you're thinking to yourself, oh, they're gonna owe me. Like, this is one of those moments where you're like, I'm gonna give this gift and now I'm expecting something back. Or when you're a kid, you think to yourself, all right, I'm going to give a gift, but at least I get a goodie bag at the end of the party, right? We're thinking about what do I get in return? Well, worship is a gift. And giving worship, giving worship is a central human activity. It's how we are hardwired. It's built into us. All cultures throughout history give worship. It's a natural thing that comes out of them. History gives evidence to this basic truth. All you have to do is look through historical artifacts or museums and you see so many points of indication that worship is central to what it means for us to be human. We are worshiping creatures. It's just built into uh, the makeup of our lives. Um, and so the question is not for us to ask, do I worship? Because you do. Um, the questions are, how do you worship? Or who or what do you give worship to? Why do you worship? These are the other questions, not do I worship? And for those of us who follow Jesus, the question for us as Christians is, is our worship for God? Is our worship shaped by God or is it by something else? Is it for something or someone else? 
Our worship is a gift to God. It is one of those gifts we were created to give, and God is always, always worthy of receiving it. But along the way, worship, it can slip. It can slide off course. Mixed motives start to get in there, and selfish pursuits, apathy, and frustration can so easily cloud this one profoundly human activity. If you actually look at the entire story of God, you can see that it's actually a worship manual. It's a text on instructions, inspiration, encouragement to all point us in the direction of how we worship well. It could be argued that it is one of the central purposes of the Bible itself is to help us figure out how to worship how to give that gift to God, which he appreciates. If you go back to all the way to the very beginning, we see in Cain and Abel, right? We see in Cain and Abel's, there's a, it's a worship service, essentially, a worship war between I did it this way, he did it this way, God was pleased, God was not pleased, and it ended in murder. The first murder came out of an act of worship. And then you jump forward a little bit further into the story of Exodus, And it's easy to focus on God setting his people free. And we think that's the objective and stop there. But when we actually look closer, God's instructions to Moses is very clear that he is giving to Moses the directions to Pharaoh time and time again saying this, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. That was in Exodus 7.16. So that they may worship me in the wilderness. And then in Exodus 8.20, it says this. Then this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. It happens again in chapter 9, verse 1. And again in 9.13. And again in 10.3. And again in 10.8. This whole Exodus narrative is actually about God freeing and redeeming a people so that they can worship God. Because God knows, because he created us, that we are worshiping creatures. We are made to give glory and worship to something. It's just built in to who we are. Then we have the book of Leviticus. Um, And it's an entire book of complex detail that's explaining to the Israelites how to worship well and how to worship differently than other nations. Then we have the Psalms. The whole book is a a book about singing songs to God. Okay, I'm trying to prove a point. I hope you're kind of catching my drift that worship matters to God, and it's how we were designed. Um, And what I want us to understand in all of that is that God is deeply interested in guiding us in the right direction. And I dare say it, and because of the world we live in now, It's kind of scary to do this sometimes, to ever provide a warning, but there are right and wrong ways to worship. I know, I'm sorry, it's true. How dare I suggest that? When you go to Scripture and when you read it and you start to walk through it, you you can't escape that 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 exists. God is clearly invested in helping us understand this beautiful, wonderful, life-giving, and dangerous activity. I remember when I was a kid, 
I was 18 years, I was almost 18, I was 17 years old, and I was at a, at a youth conference, and there was like thousands of kids from all over the world, actually, had gathered to this, in this conference, and we were worshiping God. And it was a time of uh, beautiful, just, we were singing, and there was encouragement, and I just, I remember having this kind of vision where as I was watching all of us singing, the thousands of us, I just could picture all of a sudden God looking down on all of us, like from heaven, with like tears in his eyes of just pure delight and wonder and love over all of his people. And in that moment, all I ever wanted to do was to make my Father in heaven proud. All I ever wanted to do was to worship him. It was one of those beautiful moments where I was just reminded, I, felt like, I feel like the Holy Spirit really helped me understand that this is important. At the end of the day, I hope to grow as a worshiper. I desire to please God. I long to be fully myself before God with unrestrained joy, and I hope that that's something that's a longing in your heart too. Maybe you've been disappointed by worship. Maybe you've been frustrated, or it's apathetic, or it's just so mixed up with self-motives and all of these things. Well, the story today, the story of David and worship, the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, back to war, into the city of David, helps us. It points us towards some deeply helpful insights and guidance for worship. The story within the larger story is deeply formative. We need this story. Let before I go on, let me pray. Lord, as we enter into your text, as we enter into your word, we know that we are formed by it. We are shaped by it. We need it. We don't know the right way to go. We don't know the right way to live and be without your guidance, and your word gives us that. And Lord, I bring myself before you in this community humbly. I, I'm not a great worshiper, Lord. I desire to be better. I desire to be in that intimate place with you more often, and I, I just ask that you guide me in this moment to help give and inspire and encourage our community to be a worshiping community. Lord, thank you for this time together. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. All right? 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, David is already king. So we've jumped forward and we are moving towards where he's already king. He's defeated the Philistines and he's defeated them well. All right? Um, and so he, David has just defeated the Philistines and now he is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now, a bit of context. The Ark of it held the promises of God. It held the covenant documents, and it held other sacred artifacts that were symbolic of God's relationship with Israel. It represented God's holiness and his presence among the people. But it didn't just represent God's presence. It was actually considered the footstool of God's very presence. It was his place, and it was powerful, and there was um, mystery attached to it. It was one of these sacred artifacts that was central and to corporate worship for Israel. Now, the Philistines, uh, way back in 1 Samuel 14, they stole it. 
They brought it out. And then all of a sudden, the Philistines, they like get sick and there's these diseases and they're like, oh my goodness, this is because we took the Ark of the Covenant. And so they put it over in this one small town and they leave it there. And it stays in that town for 70 years. And finally, here is this moment of bringing God's kind of presence, his symbolic um, connection to his people, back into the central place of worship for the Israelites in Jerusalem. All right? So this is where we're at. This is where the story takes place. David is returning the ark. Um, Here we go. I'm going to read this story And the story itself is just so illuminating that I didn't really want to miss much of it. But as I read along, I'm going to pause and I'm going to highlight something that we've just looked at. And I believe that will help expose some of these key points for us uh, from the story for how we are to be worshipers. All right. So David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all of his men went to Balal, Balhal, and... And Judah to bring up from to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out, brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, uh, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new ark, which the ark of God, uh, with the ark of God on it, and. Uh, Io uh, was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord um, with castanets, harps, lyres, uh, timbrels, uh, sistrums, and cymbals. Uh, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Yuza reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Yuza because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. All right, I'm going to pause there. A lot just happened. So, in this story, we have David with his mighty, with all of these men, bringing the ark back. Now, if you were to read the story very closely, um, you would actually discover that David brings the same number of men back to that place to recover it is the same amount of men that took place 70 years ago. David is like making this profound political statement by him coming into this territory. He did not need to bring 30,000 men. He had already conquered the Philistines. He did not need to have this grand show of force. It actually appears that David had mixed motives in bringing back this ark. Um, these, he, it seems as though David knew more about the history of how it was stolen than the history of how we were to treat the Ark of the Covenant. He was more focused on bringing it back and having this grand celebration than how he was supposed to bring it back. And now Yuza is actually from the line of the Levites, which means that it was his family's history, his family's mandate to take care of and to understand proper worship before God. And so while it seems like this mysterious tragic act where he's just trying to like help the ark to not fall over and then he's struck dead from that, in fact what's happening is he should have known. 
It was his family line to understand you never touch the ark in that way. You never do that. It's too holy. It's designed that way. And so when he reaches out, he wasn't really reflecting on what God had intended for him to be doing. In our lives, it's so easy for us to have mixed motives when it comes to worship. For us to have these political or these personal hopes, the emotional desires that when we come into worship, we're hoping to get something out of it. We're a little bit less interested in the reverence and the holiness of God, and we're a little bit more interested in what God might be giving us. In this moment, David is in despair, and it says that David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And then it says this, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And I believe that that is okay. That this is a critical first truth, a first reality for us, a lesson. That fear, reverent awe and respect of the Lord is not just the beginning of wisdom. It's also the beginning of worship. The people of God had become kind of apathetic to the ways of God and how God desired to be among them. And so they just brought it back without consideration, without the respect that was necessary, and then this event happens. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and worship. Now in this moment, David kind of freaks out and he says, okay, I don't want this near me, and he sends it over to another place. But over there, in Obed-Edom, things start to go really well for that area. Um, the Ark of the Lord remained over at the house of Obed-Edom, um, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So David, he gets his hand seriously slapped by this kind of irreverent act, and he's kind of recovering from it, but he doesn't stay there. He doesn't stay frustrated. He doesn't stay in this place of arms crossed and how could God do this and what's going on? He actually realizes, you know what? I, I need God's presence back in our community. I need it. And so he observes that this is going well for Obed-Edom and he observes that this presence of God is not something to just quit on. David didn't quit on worship. He didn't give up on it when it didn't work out the way he was expecting and things went maybe poorly. He did not quit on corporate worship. And I believe it's because he understood, not just from his own life, but just from this observation, that the presence of God does things to a community. And he longed for that to be a part of all of Israel, not just this one little place in the house of Obed-Edom. So he doesn't quit. He goes after it. He learns from this past experience. He acknowledges the holiness. He comes back to God, back to the ark, and starts again. For whatever reason, um, you may have taken a break from worship. You may have just decided, you know what? It, it didn't go the way I expected. It didn't work out how I thought it should. I'm frustrated with God for these reasons. And I just want to encourage you, if you've stopped, start again. Start again. Start worshiping God and giving him your all in all. 
So David, as the story continues, he recognizes that, um, that wherever the ark was, there seemed to be blessing. There seemed to be good things coming uh, their way. And so he goes and he decides, I'm going to do this again. Uh, so David went, and this is me just reading verse 13, just before verse 13. So when David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, so they had just made it six steps. They look around. Did anything bad happen? Did we do this okay? I think we did this right. David offers a sacrifice right in that moment. He doesn't get carried away. He recognizes the deep beauty and value and supremacy of God in this moment. He's learned how to do things correctly. And so he does this. And then he has the sacrifice of a bull and a fattened calf. Um, now he's not wearing a lot, it would seem. Um, wearing a linen ephod, um, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, uh, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Hmm. I'll just pause there for again as we continue on. David didn't give up on worship. He didn't quit. He takes this step. He kind of re-enters that worshiping situation. And then without, a, without any hesitation, he just goes all in worshiping his God. He doesn't look back. He just goes after worshiping the Lord in front of the Lord and him alone. And in doing that, this deeply humbling moment, David gave up on attempting to use worship for his own gain, and it was all about God. So when David uh, is worshiping and his wife sees this situation and despises him, um, all of these things happen, and then I want to say, point out this one line. It's in 2 Samuel 6, 21. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. It was before the Lord that he worshipped, and he gave his all. He did everything he could. Um, we'll get, get on to that point, but I want to jump back briefly to this other interesting point. When they brought, this is in verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in the place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel, Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their home. Good worship is inviting and it's welcoming and it involves others. It's not this exclusive thing. David, in the abundance of joy as, as the king of Israel, so glad that God, God's presence is among them, freely is giving to all the people that were there, men and women. I think that's a really valuable point for us to see that in a worshiping community, 
there's generosity. In a worshiping community, there's people that are extending themselves and offering more and more to other people. It's not this exclusive thing. As David has completely humbled himself and given up on trying to kind of match his like prestige while worshiping at the same time, he gives all of that up, worships just God, goes after just God, and in all of that is also generous. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, Hmm, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. Wow. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Wow. David worshipped with all of his might. He gave it all. He was willing to become even more undignified if it was necessary. He was not willing to just stop there, but to continue on. God honoring authentic worship, it's humbling. When we go before the Lord and we don't hold back, there's always going to be a moment of hesitation. There's always going to be that thought of kind of the, the Michael thought in the back of our mind. Is this undignifying? Is this going to mar my image? Is this going to affect how people perceive me? There's always going to be this concern of reputation and status because whenever we come before the Lord, the Lord asks us to come like children. He asks us to like be humbled. He asks us to, without restraint, come to him and ultimately even make a fool of ourselves before the world. But that's our call. And David demonstrates this powerfully and he recognizes it to the point where he's like, I'll even be worse than this. I would be whatever God needs me to be because what God desires, what pleases him, is not necessarily what pleases people. And he makes that distinction, and he's not worshiping to impress another person, but because he's so moved by the power and the authority and the presence of God, the beauty of God in his life. Authentic God-honoring worship, it's humbling. And it's also likely to produce some backlash. It's just kind of how it ends up being. And so people will mock, people will judge, people will scorn. And that's part of what it means for us to be worshipers. This story takes us through this interesting pattern, this interesting flow of mixed motives, um, discovering how important the fear of the Lord is, transitioning from that into this other element of where God is like, they, they, they step into worship, they give it another go, um, and then they dance without restraint. It's a place of just fully giving to God everything that he's due. And with all of this acts of humility and worship, there's going to be scorn. There's going to be people that don't understand. There's going to be judgment. And ultimately, this story, as so many stories in the Old Testament, they direct us towards Jesus. David's worship points us to Jesus, who became more undignified than anyone else. Because David, 
the shepherd king, who worshipped God with abandoned, abandon and joyfulness, is pointing to Jesus, the true and greater David, the true and greater king, who perfectly worshipped the Father with full joy and became so undignified as to lay down his life for his people on the cross. Only Jesus' worship was without mixed motives. Only Jesus' worship endured to the very end. He never quit. Only Jesus' worship was fully God-centered. Only Jesus' worship drew the ultimate scorn that led to his crucifixion and our place on a cross. And thanks be to God that our worship, even our meager, sometimes lame, reserved, or self-conscious attempts is covered over, is covered in Jesus' perfect worship of the Father. The point of David's worship isn't for us to feel guilty about how far we need to go, though there are indications of how we can grow as a worshiper. The point of David's worship is to point us to Jesus' perfect worship. And as a result of that, we are free. We are free to express our, be, be expressive and joyful and undignified in our worship because we are covered by Jesus. Our worship is before the Lord and is acceptable to God and is delighted in by God because of Jesus. While we are called to worship with all of our might, when we bring our self-conscious, our uninspired, weary, kind of offbeat, whatever the case is, worship to God, God sees our feeble attempts of worship through the lens of the Son, through the lens of His Son's perfect and ongoing worship on our behalf. So in this story, it leads us to ask the question, are we to evaluate our motives in worship? Yes. Are we called to worship with reverence and holy awe? Yes. Are we encouraged in this story to loosen up and be willing to be undignified and to be fully authentic and truly ourselves? Because that's the point. Yes, we are encouraged to do this. Are we to be uh, worshipers before God with all of our might? Yes. Are we willing to grow? Do we want to grow in our worship in our practice of worship, I would hope that the answer is yes. And David is a beautiful example of all of these things. But ultimately, we all need to look to Jesus, the perfect worshiper, and find our freedom to worship. Yes, even to dance with all of our might. Not in feelings of guilt or obligation, but instead of the good news of being covered up in him, wrapped in his worship, able to be free and unrestrained because of God's love for the Son and his love for us through the Son. We don't have to live in fear, and we can enjoy worshiping God. We were and are created to worship. The question is, is where do you direct your worship, and how do you do it? Well, you can do it without fear. You can do it in front of God without hesitation. I'd like to challenge you this week. Um, take a moment this week to worship God 
in some form, deeply authentic, your full self. If you need to run off into the forest to do it, go for it, right? If you need to go all like <laughs> footloose and like dance your way through the forest, that's okay. Do it before God. Be free and unrestrained. And we as a church, as a community of faith, we bring God back into the center. Let's bring God back into the very heart of our time of worship, recognizing that that's what it is. And it's a sacred moment, and it's beautiful and special. Friends, I hope that this has not been too stern or too firm or too much warning, but deeply encouraging. Because while David gives us a challenge, this text, this story, gives us some warnings about, like, we need to treat God with the respect that he deserves. But we also can be completely free in our worship because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who paid the ultimate price, who became so completely undignified in his worship and in his obedience to you. And because of his obedience, because of that, we are able to come to you, Father, unrestrained, free. Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone here carrying guilt and shame, that they would just give it to you, that they would surrender it. And that if there have been people that have been restrained in their worship, that they would take a moment today, tomorrow, this week, to give you all the praise that is worthy of your name. Lord, I'm so thankful that we get to worship you. You built us to worship. You built us to be worshiping creatures. And Lord, we put our worship towards you. We direct it back to our creator, our maker, the one who loves us, who's redeemed us, who's called, you, called us out and given us a name, named us with love and grace. Father, thank you that we get to worship you. It's a beautiful thing. Amen. Friends, thank you for joining us today. God bless. <laughs>